if you're the type that likes to follow along an actual Bible, Revelation chapter 3, we're going to look at this incredibly easy to understand book and um, see, see what it does with us. Anytime we read scripture, we want to ask two questions at least. What happened? And more importantly, what's happening in me now because of it, right? So what happened then? What's happening in me now because of it? Now, this is a part of a famous passage of scripture called the letter to the seven churches. Essentially, Revelation is an apocalyptic letter written to seven specific places in Asia Minor that we just so happen to have it now. But it was written to those people at that moment at that time. And so it might help us to, to, to look at it from that perspective. So this is, I'm, I'm working on a new sermon series on the letters to the seven churches to see what it says to us. And this is just one of them. This is um, to, to, to Sardis. So this is Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, there's so much packed into just that one sentence. Let me just be, to, to be brief with it. Um, in, in a Jewish culture, in a Jewish perspective, to say someone holds the seven spirits of God is a reference to Isaiah chapter 11. That it, it's essentially saying this is the testimony of the one who is full of wisdom, understanding, counsel, power, knowledge, fear of the Lord. It's, it, it's just essentially a way of saying um, he's the Messiah. Th this is the, the testimony of the one who is king, who is full of God. Who, this is the the one who is holding the seven complete spirits of God. So it's a way of saying that. But the second part is politically subversive. He says, this is the testimony of the one who holds the seven spirits of God. That would have been just purely Jewish. Oh, and the seven stars. Now, to understand this, we have to understand the rule of Rome, that the guy that put John on the island of Patmos was a guy named Nero or Domitian, okay? So Domitian was a particular narcissist. He said he was God in flesh, which that was not uncommon. Uh, all the Caesars said they were God in flesh. The propaganda on Domitian was, was that no other name on earth by which men can be saved other than the name of, of Domitian or Caesar, right? And so Caesar did some crazy stuff, like he... um. He, one of the things he did was there, there was a place called the Agora in Ephesus. And so he, he had all this big pantheon of the gods. And so to prove that he was the god of all gods, he put a roof over the top of the pantheon of the gods. And on top of the roof, put a 28-foot statue of himself. And he said, see, not only am I the king of kings, I am also the... Lord of lords. And if I wasn't in charge of all the gods, they would have stopped me. But since they didn't stop me, this proves that even the gods acknowledge my authority over them. And so this, this really got him a lot of, 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 of ump. And so there was one group of people in the world that didn't buy it because they just thought they were statues, and that was the Jews. And the Jews called him the beast who comes from land and sea. The reason is, is because whether you were coming from the east on land or whether you were coming from the west via the Mediterranean Sea, when you got to the Agora in Ephesus, the first thing you saw was the 28-foot statue of Domitian. So he was called the beast who comes from land and sea. Now his advisors told him, they said, listen, what you should do is add a tax to, to the Agora because it was the, it was the center of mercantilism. It was where everybody came to buy, sell, and trade. They said, you ought to put a tax in there, like put a toll road in the middle of the thing. He was such a narcissist. He said, you know what? I'm not going to do that because that would make me unpopular if I just add a tax as king. But since I'm God, 
people will be okay with it if I make them give an offering to me in honor of just having the Son of God rule them before they can buy and sell. The problem was, is, is that how do you police this? So here's what he did. He built four churches to his honor around the four corners of the Agora. And just to poke fun at the Jews, he inscribed his ten mightiest deeds on two stone tablets and he put them in the churches. Essentially, you've got your ten, I've got mine, right? It was that. And so, and so he, he appointed acolytes, witnesses, to witness people coming in to give their offering before they could go buy and sell. And so how would you police that? Here's what they did. When the acolytes witnessed you giving your offering to Domitian as the son of God, they would give you a mark in your forehand or in your forehead that would then tell the managers of the Agora you are free to buy and sell because you've paid your homage. So from 78 AD to 92 AD, in order to buy and sell in the Agora, you had to take the mark of the beast. Yes, obvious. All right, so, so now... See, so now what would happen is, is he had to then build this propaganda around the world. Now, how do you get a message around the world that you're the God of God? So here's what the propaganda on Domitian said. Domitian, they said that Domitian is the person filled with the spirit of the gods that keep the seven stars in place in order to hold the world where it is. Now, how do you get the world, how do you get the world to understand this and to know this? Here's what they did. They put it on money. Anytime they put something on money in the Roman Empire, it was meant to explain stuff because there was no electricity, no news, no social media. They would print news matters on money because money would eventually circulate around the empire. Let me show you the Domitian coin. This is the Domitian um, coin. Um, it, it, on the left there, it says Domitian. On the right, it says God in flesh, right? And then, and then um, that is Domitian sitting on top of the world, presumably as an infant, but nonetheless, that is Domitian <laughs> sitting on top of the world, and he's holding, if you count the stars, he's holding the seven stars in place. So this is John exiled by this guy writing a letter to an oppressed church. Remember in the first century, it was illegal to be a Christian. If you, if you were a Christian in the first century, you, you died. If you got caught, you died. And, and by the way, this is true. The charge was atheism, right? Christians in the first century were considered atheists. Here's why. They would ask them, are you practicing Judaism? Well, no, because the Judaizers got a pass because they paid a lot of tax. Oh, and you, you don't acknowledge the Roman gods? No. So you're not Judaizers? No. And you don't acknowledge Roman gods? No. Well, that makes you atheists. And atheists are problematic to a culture that uses religion to profiteer on people's spiritual guilt. And then the religion pays the government so everybody's getting rich except for the oppressed. That's a problem. So we, you're going to subvert a system by saying God loves everybody without ritual and offering. That would ruin our whole system. And so, and so they killed Christians in the first century for atheism. So John, so, so be careful, when people say, man, we need to get back to our first century roots, what you're essentially saying is we need to be atheist again. Right? So be careful, right? Like, and, and, and we don't want to, um, we, we don't want to practice something where we could potentially be put to death. We don't want to go back to, and if you've ever thought, boy, this world's getting bad these days. No, no, it's not. No, back then, way worse. Now, here's the thing, right? All right. So, so Domitian, so for John to write a letter to these seven churches, who were in this oppressed system and goes, oh, by the way, this is the testimony of the one who holds the seven spirits of God. That's his way of saying Messiah, King. 
Oh, oh, and by the way, he's also holding the seven stars. That is not something to read over. That is an in-your-face confrontation to Domitian's claims. Now, Domitian claimed he was full of God. Of course, if you claim you're full of God, the question is what? Which God. So Domitian said that he was full of the male, the spirit of the male God, Jupiter, the God of courage, valor, war, conquering, military, this kind of thing. And he said that he was full of the female goddess, Roma. So on the male side of him, he was Jupiter. On the female side of him, he was Roma. Let me show you the Jupiter coin. This is Domitian. Obviously, you can see you can actually read Domitian there on the left. That's the head side. The, the, the tail side is, is, a, is a picture of Jupiter going in to conquer something. This is him saying, oh, I'm full of this. He, he's also, he also said he was full of the goddess Roma. Roma, let me show you the Roma coin. There's Roma there. Roma was the female goddess of virtue and justice. So virtue, she was really humble and virtuous and pure and chaste and and she was also, on, on a lot of the coins, Roma is holding the scales of justice, but she's always on a horse. So, so you could see there, she's coming in on a horse, and she's holding the scales of justice and virtue, and this is what the idea was. Can you see now why in Revelation, John says things like, and I saw a great whore coming in on a horse to the city of seven hills, right? This is not something to be taken literally, like... My goodness, please don't be looking at the sky waiting for a whore to come down on a horse. Like, because let, like, let's just be honest, there's nothing scarier than a whore on a horse. Can you imagine that? <laughs> right? No, no. This, what a ridiculous thing. This is, this is John writing to an oppressed group of people going, hey, hey, by the way, this is the testimony of the one who holds the seven spirits of God. Oh, and the seven stars. In your face, Domitian. Oh, and by the way, the goddess that Domitian claims to be full of, not only is she not virtuous, she's the opposite of virtuous. She's actually a whore. This is like, this is in your face, subversive political literature to stand up for the oppressed over an empire that is holding people down. This is uh, kind of stuff. Now, Sardis existed in this empire. So Sardis was an important part of the Lydian Empire of Persia. It was on the main road from Ephesus to the inner parts of Asia Minor. So it was a main center of buying and selling. The Roman archives were held there because it was impenetrable. The reason for that is Sardis was built as two parts, a, a lower city and an upper city. So there's a lower city of Sardis and then the upper city, they found a flat spot on top of a 1,500 meter high cliff face, and they built a city up there for the really affluent, and that's where they stored the Roman archives, that's where they had the central banking, that's where, because it was impenetrable. You could never ever attack Sardis, because to attack Sardis, you'd have to go up a 1,500 meter high rock face, and no matter what you did, you'd be covered from an elevated position. It was considered the most secure city in the world. It hit its, it hit its stride under the rule of a guy named Croesus. Maybe you've heard this metaphor. I've heard it recently on the news. When they talk about somebody really wealthy, they'll say rich as Croesus. Rich as Croesus. Croesus was maybe the richest man who's ever lived. He's at least in the discussion. However rich he actually was, let's just agree together. If you're in the discussion for possibly the richest guy who's ever lived, you're in good stead. And he, he did some crazy things invention-wise. He was the first person to master the art of spinning wool. Here was his idea. If you watch movies that are set before Croesus, if they're accurate, people are wearing whole animals. What they do, they kill the animal and wear the animal skin, right? Croesus had this idea. He said, wait a minute. Instead of killing the animal and wearing its skin, what if we shear the sheep, 
spin the wool into cloth, and then next year the sheep make more wool. Right? Now, the Kiwis are like, we figured that out before you, but nonetheless, <laughs> Croesus was, the, they didn't know about them back then. Croesus was the guy who, who figured this out. He also was the first person to master the art of minting coin with standardized amounts of gold and silver. Before Croesus, you had to guess how much gold and silver. There's all these tests you had to do. People could be dodgy, whatever the case may be. No, no, Croesus said, no, no, let's fix that. We'll standardize the amount of gold and silver in every coin. So the whole world started looking to Croesus to print their money and who got a small cut off of every coin crisis this is this guy is unbelievable it gets better after he mastered the art of minting coin they found the largest deposit of gold ever found in the history of the world up to that time underneath the upper city so if you're following me here he masters the art of minting money and then he finds the largest deposit of gold ever up to that time underneath his feet this literally gives this man a license to print money. This guy was unbelievable, but there's a problem. When you find the, when you find the largest deposit of gold ever found in the history of the world underneath your feet, what happens? Everybody wants it. So here's what he had to do. He had to build a large army to protect his stuff, but he had an advantage. He was in an impenetrable city, 1,500 meters high up a rock face, and here's what he did. He built a 40-foot wall on top of the 1,500-meter rock face to even make it more impenetrable, and he went on the record to say no one would ever be able to attack Sardis. It is impenetrable. Here's the problem. It kept being attacked. In 546 B.C., a guy named Cyrus the Persian sent spies to check out how to get into Sardis. And he told the spies, if you can't find a way in, don't bother coming home. It's not going to be good for you. Stay there until you find a way in. They couldn't find a way in until, and here's how the story goes. There was a military man whose job was to watch the wall of Sardis. Now, let's think about this. If your job is to watch the wall of a wall 1,500 meters in the sky and it's impenetrable, that would literally be the most boring job on earth. The story goes, he fell asleep on the wall. So he falls asleep on the wall, and his helmet falls off. And it goes down 1,500 meters. Instead of going back to the army barracks and fetching a new helmet or making up a story for fear of being um, punished for falling asleep on his duty, he instead of making up a story like, I, I was playing with my helmet, it fell, and going to get a new one. No, 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 no. He sneaks down to the valley below through a secret passageway that was dug by Croesus from the middle of the city, surpassing the wall, going underneath the wall, through the mountain, and into the valley below. He goes down and fetches his helmet, not knowing the spies are there, puts the helmet back on, and climbs back up into the city through that secret passageway that was built for the military only. He revealed the entranceway into the city in a way that didn't have to go through the wall. So, in 546 BC, in the middle of the night, while everyone was asleep, Cyrus the Persian sent a platoon of soldiers through that secret passageway, and they robbed everybody for all they were worth while they were asleep. And when they woke up, they knew none the wiser until they realized everything was gone. Cyrus the Persian could not conquer the city, but he robbed it for all it was worth in the middle of the night. In 398 BC, Antiochus the Great did the same thing through the same exact tunnel. Here's what happened. By the time everybody died that remembered the first robbery, people got complacent in how secure they were. And Antiochus the Great 
robbed them again. In 336 BC, Alexander the Great did it again. This place was robbed three different times in the middle of the night while people were sleeping because they got complacent on how secure they were. This is Sardis. Now, that's a political history. Here's a religious history. So the religious rule of Sardis. Sardis was dominated by the religious rule of a goddess named Kibbala. Kibbala is also called Diana. She's mentioned in the Bible several times, but they call her Diana. Also called Artemis. It depends on what region you're from. But in this region, she was called Kibbala. She was the daughter of Zeus. She was the twin of Apollo. I found a picture of Kibbala. I'd like to show it to you. Here's Kibbala. There she is. Isn't she awesome, right? That's... um. That's Kibbalah. As you could as you could tell without much observation, she's 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 the goddess of fertility. Um, she's obviously very sexual. Um, she has the ability to sustain lots of life. Um, in case you're not following me here, she's got 20 sets of breasts, right? And so that was the and let's just be honest, even when they're four thousand years old and made of stone, a twenty breasted woman is just awesome. Like it's just awesome. So she was, she, was, she was the goddess of fertility. Um, she, the idea was she had enough to, to sustain lots of life. She also, um, she also was the goddess of the hunt. So the idea was, is, is before there was commercial farming, you had to go, it didn't matter how rich you were, you had to go find food. And so what you would do is you would go to the temple of Kibbalah and you would offer an offering to Kibbalah and ask for favor for her to bless your hunt um, so you could find an animal to, to kill and then later eat, right? This would be, it'd be, the, it'd be the same as if you were going on a fishing trip today or you were going to go hunt something today, and before you went, you prayed and said, God, please bless her. It would be, it would be that, but then they, they would offer her this offering to, to, to go do that. But here was the problem. She was also the goddess of protection of small animals, so there was this conflict of interest going on. Right? So, so, so here's what happened. This is an absolutely true story from history. There was a famine in Sardis. Now, this bothered the rich because these were the richest people in the empire. This bothered the rich. They can't find food, and they, they, weren't, they worked out. It doesn't matter how much money you have. If you can't find food, you can't find food, and th that, that was a problem. Now, think about this from a primitive point of view. If you live in Sardis and you can't find food, who do you assume you have offended? Kibbalah, right? So you, you assume we must have offended the goddess of the hunt. So what do you do? You, you bring more offerings. And then there were still no animals. So what do you do? You bring more offerings. No animals. What do you do? You bring more offerings. Still no animals. So they got to the end of the rope. People were starving. Crimes going up. I mean, this is a, a problem. So here's what they did. 1,500 men. 1,500 men went to the temple of Kibbalah to show their, their loyalty to her. Now, how... Does 1,500 men show that they're loyal to a female goddess? What do, you, what do you do? Well, here's what they did. In a religious frenzy, they castrated themselves and then offered their testicles on the altar to Kibbalah as a burnt offering to show as men, we are loyal to you. By the way, in 1918, archaeologists found the ancient temple to Kibbalah and they uncovered the altar it is today a tourist attraction in Turkey. So, if you're ever in Turkey on a tourist tour and you find the altar to Kibbalah, don't sit on it. It's got history, okay? <laughs> now, now this, unbelievable. Now, here's the thing, right? Let me make a point. 
that directly speaks to us. Paul built a thriving church there. And, and you thought Melbourne was hard. Man, Frankston. You know how hard it is to build a church in Frankston? What? Sardis. First, illegal. Second, penalty of death. Third, whatever the worst thing going on in Frankston is tonight, it's Nickelodeon compared to Sardis. <laughs> Paul built a thriving church there. And let me make my bigger point. He did so without ever speaking poorly about Kibbalah. How do we know? You say, Shane, how do you know that? Oh, because it's written down. In Acts 19, the people of Sardis and Ephesus are having a problem with how successful Paul's church is going. Paul went to Ephesus and Sardis and started a thriving church. How? Easily. Here was his message. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Let me tell you about Jesus. He's a God that loves you just because. He'll take care of you just because. Just because he loves you, regardless of ritual or anything you do for him, he's going to make the first move towards you always. He's going to love you without it costing you anything. He's going to forgive you without it costing you anything. He is going to take care of you without it costing you anything. As a matter of fact, he's going to provide food for you, and you can keep all your bits intact. Join us. Well, that message sings. And here's what happens. The church started growing. So what did they do? The priest of Kibbalah have him arrested. And they take him to the pagan judge in Ephesus. Now here's a guy whose interest is in getting rid of Paul. The pagan judge in Ephesus, this is in Acts 19, and I think I'm quoting this almost word for word. The pagan judge in Ephesus says, What do you want me to do with him? For he has not robbed our temple nor has he blasphemed our goddess once. Which I think we need to pause and think about that for a second. So Paul built a thriving church in that epicenter without saying one bad thing about her. And here's the thing. The stuff going on around her, she's the goddess of fertility. How does the goddess of fertility receive worship? Through certain fertility rituals. Okay? I'll just leave it with that. Outside, open-aired, public expressions of fertility rituals. That is what's going on outside your front door in Sardis. And Paul starts a thriving church there and never says one bad thing about her. Why? Because... The best way to build the church of Jesus Christ is not to announce on the internet everything we're against, but rather to give glory to all the goodness that Jesus is. Right? Right? I am so inspired by Acts 19. He built a church and he didn't rob our temples, nor did he blaspheme our goddess once. Could we do that? What could the church of Jesus Christ look like if we made a commitment to be only about everything Jesus is for and leave all the stuff we're supposedly against. Leave it be. Leave it be. It's not compelling anyway. And whatever you think is the inherent wickedness of Melbourne, it is Nickelodeon compared to that. Paul went into the epicenter of that and kept his mouth shut about that because Jesus was too good not to talk about. So 
and it doesn't make Jesus more compelling to be clearly against that. It makes Jesus less compelling. You don't have to be that compelling to walk into a place where they thought they might have to castrate themselves to get food in order to make Jesus compelling. There is a better way to live. Now, that is the geopolitical and religious history of Sardis as I know it. <laughs> I, thought it was, I thought it was pretty good. Well, it's one thing to know it. It's another thing to be entertaining while you're telling it. Because I could see some of you, and I said, let's do a history lesson. I could see some of you. Some of you are like, oh, no. Like, no, I don't, I don't want history. I think the Ottoman Empire is a furniture store. What are you talking about? Like, just, what? I think you might have had a bad history teacher. Like, like, like give, me, give me a second. So that is the geopolitical and religious history of Sardis as I know it. Let's see if that makes the scripture make any more sense. To the angel of the church at Sardis, write this. This is the testimony of the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're actually dead. The same word there is asleep. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. This is a group of people who've been robbed consistently in their history because they got complacent where they were. Which leads me to this question. Is there that much difference between Melbourne and Sardis? I mean, besides the open-air debauchery and, and castration to get food, like, like take some of those obvious things aside. Here's what Sardis was. Sardis was the most affluent and the most secure city in the Roman Empire. Are we really that different? Wouldn't Melbourne be one of the most affluent cities in the world? Really? Like, even if you're on the dole, you're still in the richest 7% of people in the whole world. And, and, and for those of us who have one car, for those of us who have two in the same house, pretty affluent. We live in a nation with motor cars, paved roads, stores that prepackage food for us, clean water in our tap, machines that do washing, other machines that do drying, world-class healthcare right down the road, and it's largely free because Australia lives with the conviction that everybody should have access to healthcare regardless of social economic status. What? When I hear Australians complain about Australia, seriously, if you can't make it here, bro, where are you going to go? <laughs> well, Australia's just so tough. What? Look, I love America, but don't get sick there. Okay? Go bankrupt. Don't ever travel there without insurance, I can tell you. Right? You live in Australia. We, because I'm a resident of Australia now. So I'll include myself. You'll accept me, right? Yeah. right? We live in one of the most affluent places on earth and one of the most secure. We're not living, that door's open. We're not living in fear of somebody coming in and harming us, particularly not government-sanctioned harm. We're not doing that. No one's attacking Australia. 
Why? Because if they did, the entire United Nations, including America, would be here immediately. And that's good. Otherwise, you'd have to, defend, you'd have to de depend on New Zealand, and they have one fighter jet. Okay? I think they have a one submarine. You realize in New Zealand, I say the same thing just the other way. Okay. So, it's good for humor. My point is, the most affluent and secure, you're in one of the most affluent and secure places on the earth. And here's the problem with affluence and security. And let me be clear, I am for both. I would rather live now than any time in history. I like running water. Showers. Right? Are you kidding me? I like the fact that women have a right to vote. I do. I think that's awesome. I like that. I like the fact that racism is not nearly done with, but it is better than it's ever been. I, I like where we, I like the fact that if any of us got sick today, that hospital will treat us and we don't have to worry about going bankrupt because of it. I am for all of that. But here's the problem with that. When we live in that kind of world, it is so easy to fall asleep and forget that we actually depend on the presence and the moments with God to sustain our life. We are not any different than Sardis in that sense. That the temptation would be to just get complacent, fall asleep, and forget our absolute desperation for God. To forget our absolute desperation for the presence of God to sustain our life. Now, watch what he says. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not sold their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they're worthy. The one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. I'll never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Let him who has ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So that is what happened. Now let's ask a better question. What's happening in us right now because of it? Like, I don't want you to just believe that. Who cares? I, I, I'm actually not interested in what you believe. I'm actually more interested in how you believe what you believe. So what are you going to do with what we just talked about out there? And I have a couple of ways to put some language around that. I think, I think the Spirit would say to us, wake up. Wake up. What are you doing? Don't get complacent. You get complacent, somebody's going to take what's yours. That is not the way to live. Yes, you live in affluence. Yes, you live in security. But it is time to wake up. Never, ever, ever get complacent and lose the idea that we are actually desperate for moments of deep, deep moments of meaningful presence of God that sustains our life. We need to wake up. We can't take these things for granted. Can't. I think the Spirit would say your deeds are not finished. Like God's not done with you. The best days for Bayside Church are ahead of it, not behind it. It's ridiculous. The best days for your life are ahead of it, not behind it. There are still infinite possibilities for all of our lives. If you woke up this morning breathing air, there are infinite possibilities for your life. To sit around sitting on your butt waiting to go to heaven when you die, that's boring. Come on. There are still infinite possibilities to partner with the infinite possibilities of the risen Christ to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. You can't rest on what you did yesterday. There is still more to your story. The Spirit of God said to the church at Sardis, wake up. Your deeds are not yet finished. And I think he could easily say that to the church at Frankston, Melbourne, Cheltenham, Lilydale, 
Dandenong, wherever we're talking about, I think the same message is still applicable and is still relevant to wake up. Our deeds are not yet finished. Third thing he says, he says, remember and hold it fast. Remember. Hey, don't, don't forget to remember. Don't forget to remember what you'd be had God not touched your life. See, sometimes we just, like, one of the things the Jews do that I think is so helpful is once a year, they have to declare out loud in a ceremony. And once again, ceremonies are good if they accomplish what they're meant to accomplish, which is to reconnect us with truth. They don't create truth. They reconnect us with truth. But here's what the Jews do. They stand in a ceremony and they say, my father was a wandering Aramean. This is from Deuteronomy 26. In other words, my father was a homeless refugee slave, and had God not brought us to the promised land, I would still be. It reminds them and reconnects them to how desperate their need is for God to continue to be in their life. We need to remember. We need to, we need to remember what God called Bayside Church to be. A thousand points of light around the bay. We've got to remember that. Got to remember that. Why? Because the white noise of our world or discouragement or disappointment, what happens is the voices of the infinite possibilities get lower and lower and lower. And my goal this morning is to enliven the, go- the, the voices of the infinite possibilities of what God has called us to be. And that needs to be remembered and hold it fast. This is a reference to an ancient Jewish teaching around a disciplined imagination. What they said was is that a fleeting imagination will not hurt you nor help you. So if you have a fleeting, destructive, if you have a a destructive thought and it just comes and goes, it's not going to hurt you. Uh, Or if you have a helpful thought, but it comes and goes, it's not going to help you either. That's why somebody says, oh, I got a vision from God. We're going to do some things. But then the next week they're onto something else. It doesn't help. Right? Fleeting imaginations don't hurt nor help but a disciplined imagination. What the rabbis taught is wherever you discipline your imagination, wherever you discipline your seeing is where your reality will eventually go. And that's true negatively. It's also true positively. That, that, that John is saying through Jesus, he's saying, listen, remember, hold it fast. Remember what Bayside was called to be. Remember what your life was called to be. Hey, remember that moment when the voices of the infinite possibilities was really alive inside of you? Get back to that. Next one he says, he says, repent. Now, in this sense, repentance is not a shame-based thing. And I think it would do us well to remove repentance as being shame-based. Like, shame, repentance is not a shame-based thing. Sometimes it is. I'm sorry for acting that way. I'm going to change my behavior. In that sense, it can be shame or guilt-based. But repentance is a lifestyle. Repentance just means to change the way you think. And every now and then, God's going to urge you to change your thinking so you can grow. And so in that sense, repentance is just a lifestyle choice. It just literally means to, to change your thinking or to turn around, to hold fast to what you've been called to do. Like, here's what Jesus says to the church at Sardis. Wake up. Your deeds are not yet finished. Remember and hold it fast. Return to that. Get back to the voices of the infinite possibilities. I think the last thing he would say is this. Be encouraged by each other. There's this interesting sentence in there where he says, like he goes from, wake up, there's a thief could come. Don't get complacent. Like he's preaching. And then he goes, hey, um, look around. There's a lot of people who had not sold their clothes. What an odd sentence. Until you understand history, could you imagine trying to live for Jesus in Sardis? Imagine that. Could you imagine trying to explain to the most affluent group of people in the empire why you're suddenly living for the poor? 
why you're suddenly living to make people who could do nothing in return for you, why would you ever make their life better? Could you imagine trying to live for Jesus? Because Sardis is not a big place, by the way. When you walk out your front door, you're likely to see open-aired fertility rituals in an act of worship to Kibbalah. Could you imagine the debauchery, the horror, and you're going to try to live for Jesus under the threat of death? You might, in that, in that arena of discouragement, you might start believing you're by yourself. You might start thinking, none of this is worth it. Nobody else is doing this. And here's the thing about loneliness. The psychology of loneliness is so irrational, but so powerful. The idea when we get lonely or feel lonely is we globalize the particular. So one thing happens and we think, well, everybody's doing it, right? Or one person comes against you and you think, well, no one's listening to me. Or, or this one person has a problem with something you did and you're thinking, no one else cares. I'm wasting my life. Like that, that it gets irrational like that, but it's very, very powerful. And John says to this group of people, hey, look around. Lots of people haven't sold their clothes. And, and remember, they're not allowed to announce they're Christians. You had to be able to tell by their behavior, right? Which is a whole different thing. Which, by the way, if, if they made it illegal tomorrow to say you're a Christian or to use the word God or to say the word Jesus, it shouldn't affect the church at all. Because the church's power is not in their ability to announce their faith. It's in their ability to demonstrate it. And that, right? So you, you had to... Right? You had, to, you had to tell by people's behavior. Or they, uh, you, you, couldn't, you, couldn't risk, you couldn't risk asking because if you ask the wrong person, you'll die. So you had to actually tell from how people were living, that's got to be a follower of Jesus. Could you imagine a world like that? No one. No one could announce, I'm a Christian. I stand up for Christ. No one. No one could do that. And, and, and yet, oh, and yet God's purposes continue this is why i i get so i get so discouraged with how small i see christians making god on facebook or internet they'll say things like oh god oh god what what do we do man what if labor wins you know like oh lord what if labor gets in you know and i'm thinking can you imagine just praying a prayer like that to jesus jesus please make sure labor doesn't get in because what do we do if labor gets in, I think Jesus would be like, what? We overcame Sardis, bro. Like, just, just a quick history of the God you serve. The God you serve overcame the Egyptian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the Dark Ages. I think he can handle whatever political party you're worried about. What are we talking about? People go, people go oh, if that happens, the church just... You may as well just blow it up. What are you talking about? This, this is Sardis, where you had to tell if someone was a follower of Jesus just by watching their life. And Jesus says, look around. There's lots. Actually, you're not by yourself. And here's the problem with a church like this. Here's the problem. There's a way that you can come in to a church like this, authentically experience the presence of God in worship, authentically be moved by good preaching, and you can authentically participate in all of it, and really, man, yes, but you can leave, and as soon as you walk out the door, you feel lonelier than ever before, and that's a problem, which is why part of our mandate 
as the church is to make sure that we give encouragement to each other. That we let people know. The first thing God ever said wasn't good, loneliness. That's good, that's good. Oh yeah, that's good, that's good, that's good. Oh, that's not good. And the not good was loneliness. Why? Because loneliness leads to all kinds of destructive thoughts. And we need, if we don't do anything else before we leave today, we need to step out of our comfort zone and just tell somebody, hey, you're a good mom. Hey, hey, that medical thing you're waiting on, I can do nothing to solve it, but I sure can be, I can be in this with you. You're not by yourself, right? You're not by yourself. Like the spirit of encouragement can come on any of us, right? Like, let me show you how easy it is. It's, it's, just, it's just not hard. Like, like Rob's, I, call, I would call Rob a good friend of mine, right? And I would hope he knows, he, you're not alone, bro, ever, ever. And the reason you're not alone is because I'm in your life, right? I'm always a flight away. Well, actually, I'm a one-hour flight followed by a six-hour flight followed by a 12-hour flight followed by a two-hour. So now, in, that, in that sense, you're by yourself for a day. But, but right? Like, like just knowing, and, and, here's, and here's what I think happens, right? I think as people of faith, sometimes we feel so much pressure to solve the problem presented. When we know we can't solve it, we just retreat. But what if we remove the pressure to solve it and just committed our lives to being present in it so no one felt alone? What if that's the more profound thing? What would Jesus say to us? Wake up. Your deeds aren't finished. Remember and hold it fast. Return to the infinite possibilities and be encouraged by each other. So I bless you, my brothers and sisters, to not just be people on your way to heaven when you die, to be people who realize you're living in the best time ever, serving the best God, Serving, serving the God who, whose spirit has been at work since before the foundation of the world and his purposes went out. I bless you to be people who don't get discouraged by bad news, but who understand that there's a better way to live. Till I see you next time, everybody. Grace and peace. God bless.